A while back, uh, I was with my oldest, Ava. Sorry, Ava, you're on the spot this morning. We were ordering some food, and they completely got her order wrong. And I won't tell you where, okay? But they messed it up in every way, and not in a good way. Thankfully, she was hungry, and it didn't go to waste. And as she was eating it, she made a very interesting observation. She said, Dad, have you ever noticed that they hardly ever get your order wrong in a good way? Right? It's always mayonnaise instead of mustard. It's always one less French fry than one additional French fry. She also said they, they never accidentally put bacon on your cheeseburger, right? Has anybody ever had that experience where they accidentally put bacon on there? Hardly ever, right? Oftentimes when they get our order wrong, it, it falls short of rather than exceeds our expectations. You're probably wondering where I'm going with this. Well, I'll tell you, when, when Christ came... He was not the Messiah that the Jews in the first century were anticipating, nor were were many of them wanting. We're going to clearly see that in the passage that we're going to study this morning. But something else we're going to learn from this section of Scripture is that while that's the case, Christ far exceeded, far surpassed man's expectations. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 5, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, and we are continuing with Christ's ministry in Galilee. Today we are going to learn that Jesus was not the Messiah those Jews in the first century were expecting, but He was, in fact, better. We're going to examine why that's the case as we look at these stories this morning from the end of Luke chapter 5 that make this important point. Notice the the first point here. First we see that the religious leaders were expecting, number one, the Messiah to bypass and condemn sinners. He came to call them to repentance. Look beginning in verse 27. After this, Luke says. Now let's stop there for a minute. After what? Remember where we were last week, right? This is right after Jesus forgives the paralytic of his sins and then, and then heals him. After this, we're told, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It is interesting that this story occurs right after Jesus cleanses the leper and forgives the sins of and heals the paralytic. Jesus reveals in these miracles the work that the Father has sent him to accomplish. He has sent him to seek and save the wretched, the leprous, and the lame. 
He came to forgive and restore the wayward, the outcast, those viewed as separated from God and his people. Jesus demonstrated that in those two miracles he performed and in his confrontation with this tax collector here when he calls for him to follow him. Now, to understand why the scribes and the Pharisees get so upset here, we need to understand who the tax collectors were and how they were perceived in the first century with this Jewish audience and Jewish society. In this day, in a Jewish person's mind, if you were needing a good example of what a sinner was, next to prostitutes, there were tax collectors. While prostitutes were selling their bodies for profit, the tax collectors were unfairly profiting off of their their fellow man. They were perceived as, as oppressors of their own nation, traitors, because they, they were viewed by their own people as being in cahoots with, with the Roman rulers who were oppressing the Jewish people and unfairly taxing them. In this day, certain Jewish people were appointed by Roman rule to collect from their people, and many of them, not all, but quite a few, were guilty of gathering more money, collecting more money than what they should have for their own personal gain. They were guilty of serving the interest of Rome. They were guilty for serving their own personal interest at the cost of their own people. And many of them did quite well financially. We'll learn later in our study about a man named Zacchaeus. Listen to what we're told about Zacchaeus. We're told he was a chief tax collector and he was rich. How did he get rich? Luke tells us he defrauded his own people. He deceived them. He swindled them, cheated them out of a lot of money. And Christ, like he does with Zacchaeus here in this story, He appears to Matthew and calls for him to follow him and then goes into his house to fellowship with him and other tax collectors, which floored the Jewish religious leaders who viewed tax collectors to be the scum of the earth, the the chief of sinners. They think to themselves, surely... These individuals will receive God's rod of justice when the Messiah comes. Many think that that that's what the Messiah has come to do. They believe he's come to set up this physical, earthly kingdom and is going to throw down Roman rulers and condemn all of those traitors who associate with them. That's what many believe is going to happen here. That's the expectation Instead, Jesus goes to a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, and calls for him to follow him, which Matthew does. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him, Jesus, a a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of who? Tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. I love this. When Matthew responds to Jesus' call, notice what Matthew does next. We're told he throws a party. Isn't that a perfect response? 
for, for a person who has discovered the grace of God in Jesus Christ, shouldn't there be that kind of rejoicing? Matthew certainly thinks so. When considering the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew thinks a party sounds appropriate. And, and notice he invites others to take part in this celebration. He invites all his tax collector friends to join him with Jesus. Believers, no man or woman who has truly ever tasted grace wants to experience it alone. I question your salvation if you do not have a desire for others to experience what you have experienced through Jesus Christ. Notice his response and Jesus' participation in this celebration. It upsets the religious leaders. Look at verse 30 again. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Those two titles were synonymous for them. In their minds, again, the Messiah is supposed to be condemning these individuals, punishing them, not eating and drinking and fellowshipping with them and calling for them to serve Him. The religious leaders in this day believed that holiness, their own personal holiness, they believed they were holy, that required them to remain separate from sinners, to refuse to have any contact with them whatsoever. That's why they believed that when the Messiah comes, who is holiness incarnate, He must refrain from associating with them. What they find, however, is that they were not separate from sinners, one. They thought they were, but they were one and the same with them. They failed to see themselves as sinners in need of rescue. They failed to, to see that the reason Jesus came, the reason for His incarnation, the reason for Him taking on flesh and living among them is because they were in need of rescue as well. Notice here, Jesus was not influenced by the sinners he came in contact with, <clears throat> but was in fact an influencer of them. We said this about Jesus last week. What happens when he comes in contact with the leper? That would have been shocking, right? But we see the sickness does not transfer to Jesus. Instead, healing transfers from Jesus to the leper. Same is true with Levi and Zacchaeus spiritually. They encounter Christ. Their sin is not transferred to Christ, but his righteousness is transferred to them. Many believers have asked the question of how to associate with non-believers in the world. First, they ask, is it okay to associate with non-believers in the world? And then, what is that relationship to look like? Well, I think we find our answer as we look at this story here. We are to interact with non-believers in the world, believers, but we are to do so in such a way where we are the ones doing the influencing rather than the other way around, right? Again, that's what happens with Jesus. Notice how Matthew responds. Look at verse 27 again. He went out, saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, said to him, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Notice, Jesus didn't follow Matthew in sin as a tax collector. Matthew 
followed Jesus in righteousness, followed him as his Lord and Savior. And that's the way it's supposed to look when, when we encounter non-believers. After that, Jesus gives an important lesson to the scribes and the Pharisees on the reason he has come. They believe he has come to bypass and condemn sinners. Jesus tells them very clearly he has come to call sinners to repentance. Now, don't brush past the fact that he does, in fact, call for them to repent. He doesn't leave them where they are. Some people in our world today, they like to picture Jesus hanging out with sinners, but our culture doesn't have a clue with what to do with the fact that Jesus called for sinners to repent. He does. He doesn't allow them to remain where they are. He calls for them to turn from where they are. He calls for them to forsake their sin. He calls for them to follow Him. Comes to sinners, He says, repent and follow Me. He calls sinners to repentance. And that's good news for you and for me because that's what we are. We are sinners in desperate need of rescue. That also means had Jesus not come because he's the only way of rescue, you and I would be without a hope in the world. There would be no reason for us to be here. Unclean, condemned, set against God, enemies of his, without a hope in the world. Believers, because of Jesus, we have been forgiven. As Tim prayed a moment ago, we have been brought near. We have been restored. And we, like Matthew, have the same calling on our life that, that the, the work that Jesus did, the work he called his disciples to do, that extends to us. We are to also go out and seek out those who are not trusting in him and call for the lost to forsake their sin, repent, and follow Jesus and trust in him. We're called to go to sinners like Jesus goes to Levi and call for them to forsake their sin, leave everything, and follow Christ. Who in your life are you praying for and calling out to follow Jesus? You're going to be encouraged this week to do just that. Be sure and follow your study guide Monday through Friday. You're going to be given that challenge this week. That's point number one. Point number two is the opposite side of the same coin. They expected the Messiah to come and favor the righteous. He did not come to call them. Look at verse 32 again. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this passage has been misunderstood by some. Christ is not separating tax collectors and the religious leaders in terms of sin and righteousness. He's not saying that the, the religious leaders are righteous and the tax collectors are sinners, though it appears that way at first glance. He is saying this very much tongue-in-cheek. Truth is, both groups are sinners. The problem is only one group realized it. That's a problem, right? Sometimes we have that issue with those who grew up in the church. They think just because they've never left that they belong here. But that's not always the case. You must repent and believe. Jesus says here, that's who I'm after. Those who know their need of me, 
Those who recognize their sin and are broken over that sin. Those who see their need of me. Those who see their need of rescue and humbly seek rescue from me. Which makes sense if you think about it. I mean, he talks about it here. If you don't see yourself as sick, you're not going to seek the need of a, a physician, right? You're not going to seek their help. If you don't believe spiritually that you're in need of rescue, you will not look to and cry out for salvation and probably reject it when it is offered. That is the condition of the scribes and the Pharisees here. They believed that their righteous acts made them desirable to and acceptable before God. Christ, however, taught that their self-righteousness blinded them to the truth of their sin condition, keeping them from salvation. Sad, sad state. Jesus makes it known here that he did not come to give religious leaders a pat on the back and an attaboy. He came to tell them of their need to be born again. Don't believe me? Just read John 3. It's in your scripture reading this week about Jesus and Nicodemus. No one was more impressive in Nicodemus's day than Nicodemus. And he came for a pat on the back and Christ said, you got to be born again. You got to be completely transformed from the inside out. That's why Christ came. Christ came to open blind eyes to the truth of sin and change hardened hearts, bring sinners to repentance. He came to show the self-righteous that they need to be transformed from the inside out by the work of the Spirit. He came to show that the worst of sinners could be rescued and restored through repentance and faith in Him. He did not... Come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you realize that you are a sinner in need of salvation? Have you repented of that sin? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? I pray you would, if not today. They expected the Messiah to bypass and condemn sinners but they learned that he came to call sinners to repentance. They expected Christ to come and favor the righteous, yet he did not come to call them. Next point, they expected the time of the Messiah to be a continued time of fasting. He ushered in a time of feasting. Look at verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John, they knew he liked John. They didn't like John, they knew Jesus did. The disciples of John fast often. And offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. What's up with that? I added that. That's what they're getting at. Notice they're, they're questioning the commitment of Jesus' disciples here. They say, the disciples of John fast. John's your boy. Y'all are tight, right? How come they fast, Jesus? And then when they referred, they referred to their own disciples, they say, so do the disciples of the Pharisees. They actually set aside certain days of the week to do this. We're told in Luke 18, 12, that they fasted twice a week. Read where they would, at times they'd fast for the whole day, sometimes up to three days, sometimes up to three weeks. Yet at this time in the first century, it had become an outward act of, of empty religious devotion. It had become more of an empty, emotionless, ritualistic, and, and formulaic act. 
And they asked Jesus, John's disciples fast and pray often, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours do not. They eat and drink. We fast, they feast. They party like they're doing in Matthew's house. What's going on with that? Verse 34, Jesus answers. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now think for a moment about who Jesus is in relation to the church. We're the bride of Christ, right? The church is. Jesus is the bridegroom. He says, when you're at a wedding, do you fast? You don't fast at a wedding, do you? No, you, you do the opposite if it's a good wedding. Right? You feast. You feast at a wedding. Is a bride serious and somber and sorrowful when, when with the groom? No, if, if so, you've got some issues there that need to be addressed, right? He says in verse 35, there will come a time again when his disciples will fast, when he's taken away from them. Look at it. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those Days, But he says to the religious leaders here, that day is not today. Right now, the groom is with the bride. Therefore, it's party time. It's, it, it's a time of, of feasting. Like what was taking place in Matthew's home. When the groom is with his bride, there is no need for mourning, no need for his disciples to fast in order to seek deliverance from God, which is what they often did. No deliverance has come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not a time of fasting when with Jesus it's a time of feasting. When the groom leaves, when he's taken in death, and then when he's taken up again, his resurrection and ascends to the right hand of the Father on high, a time of fasting will come once again as God's people long for his return and the completion of his redemptive work. And then when that takes place, get this, when Christ returns again, the time of feasting will begin again. And get this, it will continue for all eternity. That's reason to shout. I remind you of this when we uh, take communion. We'll take communion today. We not only take it to remember what's taken place in the past as a, as a memorial, remembering Christ's life that he lived and the death that he died in our place and his death and resurrection and, and the hope that we have in him. We not only take it in the present as a community of God's people to proclaim to non-believers in our midst, preach to them that we are trusting in this work alone for salvation and to encourage one another, but there's also a future element. We're to be taking this until Christ returns. We're to be taking the Lord's Supper meal together as a celebration in anticipation of Christ's return. The bread and the drink are to remind us that there is a feast coming when the bridegroom returns. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying... When I am with my people, there is joy. Their relationship with me, my presence with them, is a reason for celebration. It's a reason for feasting. Believers, while we are in the already not yet portion of God's kingdom story, meaning Christ has come, He has accomplished our salvation, we are in Him, we are 
forgiven of our sin, we're restored to God, we're secure for all eternity, there is still a work that we are waiting on Him to return and finish. We still struggle with sin in this life. While the, while the sting of death has been removed from us in Christ, death is still a real enemy, right? And a consequence that we still experience as a result of our sin. Therefore, we are at this time to long for and to look forward to Christ's return. We are to fast and pray and express our weariness of living in this sin, sinful and, and, and fallen, this, this broken, sin-stained world of ours. We're to inwardly and outwardly and openly express our desire for Christ to return, to right every wrong, restoring and redeeming us. Listen, while that's the case, we are also to be living lives full of joy because of who we are in Christ. The lives that we live right now today are to be celebratory. We are to be spending these days rejoicing because of the great hope that we have in Jesus. Are you living a life of joy today regardless of your current circumstances? Do you rejoice in the life you have in Christ? Well, that's a... Luke makes that emphasis again and again in the way he tells the gospel accounts. He continually lets us know that God's people worship Him for being God's people. That's the proper response for salvation is worship. He makes that point again and again. Believers, because Christ is Lord of your life, does the life that you live mirror the lives of His disciples when Christ was with them? Are your days spent in worship, in celebration. I've asked you this question again and again. When's the last time you took time just to praise God for the fact that you belong to him through his son Jesus, for his amazing grace as we sang? Last point. We have learned that the religious leaders expected the Messiah to bypass and condemn sinners. Instead, they, they learned that he came to call sinners to repentance. They expected Christ to come in favor of the righteous. However, he did not come to call them. While they expected the time of the Messiah to be a continued time of, of fasting, they learned that he ushered in a time of feasting. Last point. They expected the Messiah to bring back the good old days. Instead, he brought a new and better work altogether. Look at verse 36. He also told them a parable. Now here we have the first mention of parables in Luke. Parables are simply this. They're familiar stories that help people understand important truths. When Jesus tells them, they're kingdom truths. So familiar stories that help people understand kingdom truths. Scribes and the Pharisees were wanting more of the same. That's what they wanted with the Messiah. They were wanting a pat on the back from Him for their commitment to these outward religious practices they believed made them right and, and fit for God's kingdom. They're wanting to be told that they were close to glory and to continue with what they were doing just with some minor improvements. 
That's what they were hoping for. Jesus introduces a new work altogether. And he comes to tell them that they are in desperate need of this work. Look at verse 37. Verse 36 and then 37. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. Now, before I go into detail here on both of these parables, remember that we have said Bible study 101, look for the repetition of words, right? If you can pinpoint that the writer is, is repeating what he's saying multiple times, you can normally get to the heart of what he's saying pretty quickly. Let's look at it. There's one word that jumps off the page, two, but one in particular, it's the word new. Look at how often new is used in these four verses. Let's look at it. New, 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 and new. Seven times, okay? Now let's look at how often old is used. Old, there's another old, 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 old. Five times. The point Jesus is making here is that he is doing a new work. And that this new work that he has been sent to accomplish is better than the old work. And this new work is replacing this old work. The emphasis here is on the new. Do you see that? It's pretty clear there. Jesus lets them know here with these two parables that he has come to do a new work altogether that's better than the old. He tells both, in both of these parables, he makes this one important point. The first is about a new garment. Let's look at it. He essentially says, no one tears up a new garment and takes pieces from that new garment and attaches it to the old. Think about it. If you got an old raggedy shirt, guys, with holes in it, are you going to go buy a brand new shirt and cut up that brand new shirt and patch up that old one? No, it's going to ruin the new shirt, and it's not going to make the old one look better at all, right? No, that's Jesus' point here. That's the point he's making with the work the Father sent him to accomplish. He was sent to live the perfect life that we could never live, die as our perfect substitute and sacrifice, and rise again to rescue us from sin. He came as our only way of rescue. He came to do what Adam failed to do and what we could never do. He came as our only hope of rescue, our only way to salvation. If that's true... If Jesus paid it all, as we sing in here again and again, why on earth would man then come back and say, but the sacrificial system needs to be still in place. It needs to remain. Why would that be okay? The sacrifice of bulls, goats, and rams needs to continue on. No, Christ is the perfect sacrifice. We talked about this in our study through Hebrews. You remember, I know you've slept a little bit since then. He's our perfect substitute, our complete sacrifice, the one-time sacrifice for all time. 
Adding anything to that work lessens the work that he came to accomplish. He lived the perfect life in our place and we are saved by trusting in his righteous life that he lived on our behalf. Trusting in that sacrifice that he made in his great person and work. Why then would one then come back and say, well, yeah, he lived a good life for us and we need that good life, but in addition to that, we have a ways to go on our own. Need to do this, this, and that for a right standing with God. No. That makes a mess of this new and perfect work that he accomplished. And it shows our misunderstanding of the old, doesn't it? The author of Hebrews tells us very clearly that the blood of animals does not provide forgiveness for sin and restoration to God forever. Christ's blood does. We've used this illustration again and again. The old sacrifices, they serve kind of like a credit card. Every time sacrifice was made, it's like swiping that card and swiping that card, and that sin debt is just, it's great, isn't it? Then Christ came, laid down his life, and it was that work, the shedding of his blood, that paid the bill in full forever for those who are in him, for those who are trusting in him. Look at the uh, second parable, verse 37. He says this, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, verse 39 accurately describes the mentality of the religious leaders in their day. They were satisfied with the old. Christ said in John 5 that, that in the old teachings and in the old practices, they believed they had eternal life, but Christ corrected them. In John 5, 39, he said, no, they bear witness of me. They point to me. In this parable, he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Now, I know some of you are scratching your heads like, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, in the first century, they would have known exactly what that meant. We need some help because we're removed from that context. But they would have known, hearing Jesus say, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, they would have known, yeah, we know that. We know that, Jesus, of course not. They would have known that would have been a foolish and costly error, and I'll explain why. Wine skins were smooth animal skins, animal hide, and they knew that old skins would have little to no give to them. They would have been stiff and frail and brittle. They would have also known that during the process of, of fermentation, the wine would expand, which is why new wine required new skin with give to it. You with me? If not, the old skin, as that wine would expand during this process it would break burst open in the process pouring the wine out on the ground ruining the old skin and the new wine see what he's saying there it's a different parable but it's making the same point jesus is saying that's the work the father has sent me to do it's a new and better work and should not be placed within the old practice of Pharisaic Judaism. Not this new work. Like we said a moment ago, it would ruin the new and render the old ineffective. 
The old was meant to point toward the need for the new and was meant to be replaced by the new. It was meant to come to an end, be replaced by the new. That's the message. That's the heart of Hebrews right there. Well, to end, I want to end by simply asking you this question. Are you trusting in this new and better work? The work that Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Are you, are you trusting in him, in his person and work alone for your salvation? Have you repented of your sin? Have you forsaken that sin? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? That's the reason he came, to call sinners to repentance and faith in him. Have you come to the realization that your works, your strivings do not come close to cutting it? There is nothing you bring to the table in your own strength that makes you fit for God's kingdom. Do you realize that? Do you realize that salvation is by faith alone through the person and work of Christ alone? And are you putting your faith and trust in him alone for your salvation? Jesus paid it all. All that is required of you is for you to place your faith and trust in him and in him alone for salvation. It's only in him that we're changed. It's only through his blood that we're washed white. If you have not, I invite you today to bow the knee to King Jesus. Surrender your life to him as Lord and be saved. Let's pray together.